Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 16, 13 through 17, and also John 10, 24 through 25. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And now from John 10. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. All right, thank you, Heather, for reading that. Those two texts, uh, which will be useful for us today as we um, talk about the evidence of the resurrection. So, this sermon <laughs> is, it's funny to me that this, what I'm doing in this sermon is, is good old-fashioned apologetics work. So, um, which I don't do a lot of, as, as just a, devoting an entire sermon to apologetics. And as I was thinking this morning, um, and just kind of working through the notes that I have here, um, there's, there's just a, 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 um, something I didn't write in my notes that I, that I need to, t- to say as a part of this sermon on the evidence of the resurrection. Um, and it has to do with my own story, my own story of, of coming to know um, coming to know the Lord, which was January 1st, uh, J- no, January 21st, 1989, when I was 15. Um, but we'll get to that in a minute. So what I want to do is I want to walk us through some evidence of the resurrection. So last week we told the story. If you weren't here for that, you can go listen to it on, um, on our podcast or on, on YouTube. You can go back and hear that where we just focused on the story of the resurrection. But today we're going to look at the evidence of the resurrection because it's, it's, a, it's a tall order to be asked to believe that somebody rose from the dead. And yet Christianity hinges on it. Um, if it didn't happen, Christianity is a farce. So a little bit of going back in, in the story. On Palm Sunday, as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, people were gathered there on the hillside and they were singing praises to him because they hoped that he was somebody in particular. And what they hoped he was, was they hoped he was the true savior. One that was sent by God to save them from their sins and from oppression and from separation from God. And the million dollar question is, did he come for that? Is that who he was? And we can look at what other people have said about Jesus, but Jesus wasn't ever bound by what others hoped that he was. In fact, several times during his earthly ministry, he did the opposite of what people wanted him to do, and what they wanted him to do was because the reasons they had for wanting him to do certain things was because they thought he was going to be a certain kind of Savior and Messiah, and he he didn't. But what we want to look at here is we want to look at what Jesus says about himself, And so our texts today, they do this. 
They, they give us Jesus addressing the question, is he the Messiah? And so as Heather read from Matthew 15, this is an exchange that he has with his followers where he asks them, who do people say that I am? And they give him some answers. Some say you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Some say Elijah, uh, who's come back down. Um, some say one of the prophets. And then he says, well, who, what about you? What do you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter's the one who says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response to him is, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So there's one place where Jesus is claiming ownership of the title Messiah to his followers. But then you have this other exchange from John 10 where he's talking to those who doubted him and even opposed him. And they said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Are you or are you not the Messiah? And he said, I, I told you, and you do not believe, but the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Well, what are the works that he's done? He's brought sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. He's healed the lame. He's forgiven sins. He's raised the dead. These are bearing witness to him being the Messiah. And so here, to both his followers and to his detractors, even to his, who would become his executioners, Jesus is claiming for himself the title Christ. Now, of course, anyone can claim the title Christ, if you want to. Many have. Um, so how can you know if Jesus is the true Messiah? C.S. Lewis most famously summarized it this way. He said of these verses that Jesus claims, the things that he claims about himself leave us with only three possible options, that he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was the Lord, right? Those are the only three options that we have. Either he was just lying about his identity, or he was deluded into thinking he was the Messiah when he was not, or he actually was. So now we're getting into the territory of, well, how do we figure this out. How, how do we really know? What, what can we look to to say, okay, this is one who that we can trust is Lord of creation. To identify Jesus as the Christ, it all comes down to Easter. It all comes down to Easter. If he wasn't raised from the dead, then he was not seated at the right hand of God the Father and given authority over the grave. If he wasn't risen from the dead, then death would have shown its authority over him. And he would not have been Lord. But if Jesus was raised from the grave, what that means is the wage of sin, which is death, couldn't hold him. And the reason it couldn't hold him is because it didn't have any authority over him. If the reason we die is because of sin. If the wage of sin is death, if death is the consequence of our sin and separation from God, which scripture, that's what scripture teaches, then only somebody with authority over that would be able to die and then rise and defeat the power of death. And that's what Jesus has done. And with his death, he came to save us as our savior, by giving us his victory over the grave when he robes us in his righteousness. This is what Easter is about. And, you know, 
Again, it's a, it's, a, it's a tall order. It's either true or it's not. And at this point, many will say, well, if you want to believe that Jesus rose from the grave, if you want to go down that road, then you're going to have to ignore a bunch of stuff. You're going to have to ignore the natural order of things. You're going to have to embrace a blind faith. After all, it is remarkably implausible who rises from the dead. But there are several facts concerning Jesus' resurrection which make not only his resurrection plausible, but as many have come to believe, the only reasonable explanation for what happened on Easter Sunday, confirming that he is, in fact, the Messiah. So I want to walk us through four facts of the resurrection, evidence of the resurrection. And the first fact is the empty tomb itself, is you have to start with the fact of the empty tomb, because neither Jesus' friends nor his enemies denied that the tomb was empty. Everybody acknowledged that the tomb was empty, and so that leaves us with six possible options. The first is that the tomb in question was just the wrong tomb, that people were mistaken, they went to the wrong tomb. This would mean that the guards guarded the wrong tomb, the women and Peter and John went to the wrong tomb on Easter. And the reason this can't be is because there was enough opposition to Christianity that if Jesus' followers were basing their faith on an empty tomb, which was in fact just the wrong tomb then their opponents would have wasted no time in discovering this clerical error and broadcasting it as far as they could, but this never happened. In fact, it was Mary who was at Jesus' burial who was the first to find the tomb empty. Mary had been to the tomb when Jesus was buried. She returned on Easter. That's when she found it empty. She'd been to that tomb three days earlier when Jesus' body was placed in it. It wasn't the wrong tomb. The second option is that Jesus' enemies stole his body. But Jesus' enemies opposed the spread of Christianity. But the result of the empty tomb was that the disciples preached Christ as God's Messiah in earnest, and Christianity began to spread. If Jesus' foes stole the body, they would have, as one commentator said it this way, they would have put the corpse on a carp on a cart and wheeled it through Jerusalem, thus eliminating for all time any belief in Christ's resurrection. But that never happened. The third option is that Jesus' friends stole his body, and this is the story that the chief priests and the Roman guards circulated. We talked about this last week when we were walking through the story of the resurrection. But here's the thing we have to understand about the disciples themselves is that when this was all happening, the disciples, after Jesus' arrest, they're terrified. They're hiding. They've abandoned him. Could they have found the courage and the cunning to plot and then execute such a daring fraud in just two days' time after they had all just fled and denied knowing him? In order to do that, here's what they would have had to have done. They would have had to have overpowered the soldiers to get to the body, and that wasn't the guard's story. Also, when you look at the behavior of Jesus' disciples after the resurrection, 
you see them beginning to preach Christ. Once they know that he is risen, they begin to preach Christ with an authority that comes at a cost. What is the cost? It's the cost of their lives. They face endless persecution. Many of them are martyrs. And so the question is, would they willingly die for something that they knew was a fraud? Fourth option, we barely need to spend any time on this, is grave robbers stole Jesus' body. The problem here is obvious, and that is that grave robbers steal what is on a body, not the body, right? And so it's customary then, as it is now, for people to be buried with things like jewelry and other precious items. But what we know of Jesus was that he was crucified either naked or nearly naked, and that when he was buried, it was quickly in a nearby tomb, and that his body was wrapped in linen and spice. And what was left in the empty tomb? Only the linen and the spice. In other words, the only things that could have been taken from his body were left in the tomb undisturbed, and the only part that no grave robber would want, the body itself, was all that was missing. The fifth option is that Jesus wasn't actually dead. The, the, the name a lot of people use for this is the swoon theory, is that, is that through all the travail and the trauma, Jesus just appeared to be dead, but was in fact only unconscious from the trauma. This one also falls apart really quickly, because what it means is that Jesus went from being so depleted that trained executioners mistook him for being dead. He went from that state to being physically able to free himself from the linens that he was mummified in and then roll a two-tone stone, two-ton stone, up a hill into the saddle in which it rests and that he was able to do this either stealthily enough that the guards didn't notice or with enough strength to overpower the guards in order to escape all in three days' time without any food and water. So it can't be that one. Which brings us to the sixth, sixth option, and that is that Jesus rose from the grave, which is what Christians believe. And what we see so far from this discussion is that no one, his disciples or his opponents, ever denied that the tomb was empty. They all acknowledged that, to which historian Rod Sider concluded, if the Christians and their Jewish opponents both agreed that the tomb was empty, then we have little choice but to accept the empty tomb as an historical fact. But if it was the right tomb, and Jesus was really dead when he was put into it, and if no one stole the body, and yet the tomb was empty three days later, undisturbed, what happened to the body? Here's where we have to say, okay, when natural possibilities are exhausted, we have to be open to the possibility of supernatural ones. And this is where a lot of us would get off the train and say, I, I can't do that. But let's just be intellectually consistent for a moment, okay? We can't reject the notion of supernatural possibilities simply on the grounds that it's strange to us. Because what we end up in is a circular argument. We're insisting that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead because people aren't raised from the dead. But if we take the story on its own terms, and what are its own terms? Its own terms are that God 
raised Jesus from the dead, then we have to allow at that point that whatever happened here, God did it. And if God did it, then we have to acknowledge that God is not bound by the natural laws that he created for this world. But we don't just arrive here through deductive reasoning. We need to remember that what happened here went exactly as Jesus said it was going to before he went to the cross. Prior to his last trip to Jerusalem, Jesus said, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn him to death and they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and they will spit on him and they will flog him and they will kill him and after three days he will rise. That's Mark 10. That is very straightforward and it's very specific and it's very accurate. And these are words that he said prior to his arrest. When you look at the fact of the empty tomb and all of the possibilities that are there, the most reasonable one is the supernatural one because the natural ones don't make any sense and don't hold together at all. But that's not the only fact that we have to work with. We have the eyewitnesses. This is fact number two. The eyewitnesses. It's not just that the tomb was empty. It's that over 500 people, far too many, for this to have been a communal hallucination, saw Jesus over the next 40 days. So a month and change, right? They saw him. They walked with him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They touched him. They agreed that he wasn't a ghost, but a real person doing real things which require a real body, the eating and the touching. And although we in this room read of this centuries after the resurrection, when the Apostle Paul wrote about it, when he spoke of these eyewitnesses, he added many of whom are still alive. In other words, to say, if you don't believe what it is that I'm saying, you can talk to these people who have witnessed, who have seen and touched and ate with the risen Christ. There are hundreds of them. And what's fascinating about them is they all had different experiences. They, they, they didn't experience Jesus in the same way. There were women and there were men. There were Romans and there were Jews. Some of them, when they saw him, they knew who he was right away. Others only after sharing a meal with him or in a conversation when he made his identity known. Some saw him at night, some saw him in the afternoon, some saw him in the morning. Some saw him when they were all by themselves, others saw him in groups. Some when they saw him rejoiced. Others when they saw him were terrified. Some like Thomas when he saw him went from doubt to belief. Each appearance had its own situation, its own context, but all of them agreed that they saw Jesus risen from the grave. Which leads to the third fact. So you have the empty tomb, you have the eyewitnesses, and the third fact is you have transformed lives. 
It's not just that the tomb was empty and that there were over 500 eyewitnesses who saw him and talked with him and walked with him and ate with him and touched him. It's that countless lives have been changed in profound and inexplicable ways. And these eyewitnesses weren't people expecting to see him alive either, but they were people who had what you might call reasonable obstacles to recognizing the risen Christ. I want us to consider three eyewitnesses, three witnesses to the risen Christ. Two of them eyewitnesses, one of them not. Peter. Peter was a disciple. Peter had sworn that though everyone else would abandon Jesus, he would not. And he told Jesus this with both of his feet planted. And he was saying it about the other 11 disciples. He was saying, even if all these other guys deny you, this guy won't. I will not. And yet, when Jesus was arrested very shortly after he said that, a young girl recognized Peter as one of his disciples, and Peter denied ever knowing Jesus. And so when Jesus died, all Peter had left of that relationship was the shame that in Jesus' greatest hour of need, Peter had disowned him. And so you have to know that Peter is in the process here of just shutting down his life as a disciple. He was afraid, he was ashamed. While he was in that state, while that state, Jesus reaffirmed his call on Peter's life to be his witness. And this is just what Peter would end up doing with the rest of his life. Until, as tradition has it, he would be crucified, only upside down at his own request, because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. After seeing the risen Christ, after being reinstated by the risen Christ, this courage and fidelity and authority came over Peter as he preached Christ to some of the most hostile, powerful people in the world. It was a radical transformation. And then you've got Paul, the apostle. We have to consider him too because unlike Peter, who loved Jesus, when Paul first saw the risen Christ, he hated Jesus. Paul sought legal permission, and he got legal permission, to imprison and, when possible, execute Christians. And so on his way to Damascus to round up Christians for prosecution, Jesus appeared to him. And in that encounter, Paul went from hating Jesus to repenting before him and becoming an apostle, preaching Christ throughout Rome. Paul was likely martyred in Rome for this. Paul, who began hostile to the gospel, experienced a radical transformation when he met Jesus. What did the apostles and these converts have to gain? Because they didn't become rich. There was no money in this. And they weren't given power. 
Instead, they served the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they never tried to replace him as the object of people's worship. Instead, what did they do? They repeatedly called believers to give their lives away for the sake of others and to love their enemies. What did they have to lose here? Everything. Everything except God's hold on them. And apparently this was enough for them. Something about encountering Jesus transforms people's lives. And it still does, which brings me to the third transform life, which would be my own. I don't know how this is going to go right now. So, I was at a youth group retreat. I had just started going to this charismatic church in the cornfields of Indiana. And my favorite author, Annie Dillard, uh, wrote a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, and she said, there's one church in my town, so I go to it. Um, it's kind of how I ended up in a charismatic church. It was the place that, where there was a youth group uh, that was full of kids who loved the Lord and had a lot of fun together. And it was a place that I got brought into through some friends and wasn't unfamiliar with um, Christianity, been around the church. I'd even, ha- I'd even I, you would have looked at me and thought that I was a Christian because um, I did Christian things and, and it was a moral thing, I think. Um, more than anything else. But I remember being at at this retreat uh, in January of 1989 and standing in a circle with a bunch of kids singing songs, worship songs together. And I just had a moment there. There was no sermon. There was no altar call. There was really nothing. We were just singing worship songs where I was just kind of bowled over with the, it was like a light went on, and I realized that I had become a Christian. I don't know how else to say it, that before I was not one, and now I was one. And I remember feeling in that moment as a 15-year-old that everything was going to be affected by this. And I, I, I had never been more confident of anything in my life that I had become a Christian and that it would touch everything in my life. And I was, I was off to the races. And I had a hundred friends. We were all in together. Not a hundred, but, you know, 20. 20 friends. <laughs> and, we, <laughs> and we were all in. And we were excited about this. And we were going to give our lives to this. And we went on mission trips, and we did street evangelism in our town. We sang a lot more worship songs. And I was, I started reading the Bible. I don't know where you all are in your journey. I think that for many who who walk a road with Jesus... Uh, It's very common for there to be seasons of doubt that take us to places where we're not sure 
if what we were raised to believe is even true. Or things happen in life where you're just sort of, uh, the waves just sort of crash you against the shore so many times, you just start to wonder. Is, is the God that I thought I knew the God who is? When I was 15 years old, and I had this moment where the risen Christ transformed my life, I had not suffered much in my life. And one of the things I find as a, as a guy who's nearing 50 is that one of the ways our faith deepens is by way of suffering. It's by way of, of things happening to us that we wouldn't have asked for or us doing things that we, we, we wish we could take back or, uh, or coming face to face with the brokenness of this world that is, that is affecting the lives of people we love and we're powerless to stop it whether it's sickness, addiction, um, stubbornness. I'm not the same person that I was when I was 15. I don't believe the same things entirely that I believed when I was 15 and everything was brand new. And I don't know anybody who in their 40s and 50s believes the exact same stuff that they believed when they were 15. So if you're 15, go easy on yourself. You believe a lot of things, you're going to be mad at yourself for believing later. Um, but I also wonder when I'm 60, what's the 60-year-old version of me going to look back at the 40-something version of me and say? But here's a through line. Here's something that didn't change. And so if you're off in a far country right now spiritually, even though you come from roots where Christ was held up, be it ever so imperfectly, by people who were charged with raising you and caring for you, and you feel like, I am not there, but I don't really know where I am, let me tell you the through line. And I mentioned it last week. It's that when... I had that moment of, of clarity as a 15-year-old where I believed that, where I knew that I had become a Christian. Part of that was I knew that I was living an eternal existence, not just this life. I didn't know what that meant. I still don't know really all that, all that that means. I, I feel like a first grader when it comes to understanding what that means. But what I know is that death is not the end. And I feel like the secret that Christians carry, that we bear witness to, is there is resurrection from the dead. There is. There's resurrection from the dead. And it's not something we ever earn. And it's not something we intellectually assent into because we believe the right things and we know the right things. It's not something we get because we manage our families right. It's not something we get because our jobs look really Christian to people on the outside. It's something we get because Jesus is risen from the dead.
I can't think of a thing in my life that isn't shaped by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not a single thing. Where I live, what I do, who I'm married to, what I want for my children. What makes my heart swoon with wonder and awe? What grieves me? I can't think of a single thing that isn't shaped by the secret that there is resurrection from the dead. Fact four, the continuing church It's not just that the tomb was empty. It's not just that over 500 people saw the risen Christ. It's not just that countless people's lives have been changed historically. There's also the fact of the church. Despite many attempts to destroy it, the church continues still. You'll be hard-pressed, I would think, to find a genuine eyewitness to the risen Christ these days. But that empty tomb is still changing lives, and it's bringing people together in communities like this, where one of the things we do together is we suffer together. It's one of the greatest gifts of the local church is a place to suffer in community. We have fun, too. You do not want to suffer alone. The church was founded, and it stands or falls to this day, on Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter proclaimed. The church stands or falls to this day on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Disproving the resurrection would have destroyed the church, but it hasn't happened. The resurrection of Jesus has not been disproven. It's been disbelieved, but it hasn't been disproven. We wouldn't be here if it had been. Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners in order to pay the penalty for our sin. If there was another way for this to happen, he would have done it, but he didn't. Why? Well, because the penalty of sin is death. So he died. But death did not master him. And if he died in the place of those who believe in him, this means death cannot have authority over believers either. And so the church lives. And it lives because Jesus lives. Not only now, but forever. He is risen. Do you believe this?
Let me pray. Father, I know that the stories of how faith is formed in the lives of the people in this room are, look very different. That you use all kinds of things. You use the gracious patience of loving parents. You use the failures of imperfect parents. You use seasons of great effectiveness and progress and you use seasons where our lives just seem to unravel and we don't know if the last decade of our life is amounting to much. In all those things you are working to shape us into people who hold onto this world very loosely and cling to eternity. Father, I pray that you would make everybody, each one of us in this room, people who don't treat lightly the idea of resurrection from the dead. If we're going to disbelieve it, let's disbelieve it with all that we've got. But if we're going to believe it, Lord, may it be a hope that we cling to with everything that we have and are. Because as you said in your word, if you're not raised from the dead, Jesus, then our faith is in vain. But if you are, everything changes, everything. And so, Father, we thank you for the resurrection. Give us faith to believe things that run deeper than what we can understand. And we give you thanks for your mercy and grace and kindness. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.